Will you turn with me in the Word of God this morning to 1 Thessalonians? <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians. Our text this morning will be verses 6 through 8. Will you stand out of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant Word of the living God? 1 Thessalonians 1 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. You may be seated. In preparation last week, I came across a fascinating article in the journal, which was a review of a recently published book entitled The Juvenilization of American Christianity. The basic thesis of the book was that uh, since the 1940s, the church has been intentionally shaped in America to reach young people. And so as the author chronicles it, that means that the church was scripted to appeal to juvenile appetites. So worship songs were patterned after pop music playing on the radio. The gospel began to be spoken of in emotive terms like falling in love with Jesus. Experience became a substitute for doctrine and moral duty was replaced with social activism. And so the tenor and texture of the church became one of entertainment, comfort and positive feelings. Now, you can argue this morning whether that's all the result of a good intention or not. Some might say it is. But what you can't argue with is that kind of church as described in the juvenilization of America doesn't fit with the church that's described in the New Testament. Because the church that's described in the New Testament, such as we have before us here, has a, a much more spiritually gritty nature about it than just seeking emotional thrills and positive feelings. It's like the church which is before you. In the snapshot provided by the Apostle Paul in verse 6, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Notice that is nothing like the superficiality and spiritual immaturity of a juvenilized church. Though this church was young in age and in years and new to Jesus Christ, it was a church characterized by spiritual grittiness and maturity, a people who were word-centered even to the point of receiving that word and clinging to it with their whole soul in the midst of seasons of intense tribulation. All of it, of course, marked also with great joy produced by the Holy Spirit. 
The Apostle Paul obviously thought this was a shining example of what the church ought to look like. That's why he commends them for it here in our text. And he sets it before us this morning as a model of exemplary conduct, something the church ought to aspire to. What seems to me to be important about this text is the Apostle doesn't just report That's how the Thessalonians were, but he shows what a powerful spiritual impact they had upon churches scattered hundreds of miles beyond them far and wide, saying that they followed that example and received it with gladness. And what's at the heart of this example this morning, people of God, that we want to consider is what this church was characterized by, which is persevering in the word persevering in the Word. And we're going to take that as our basic thesis this morning and break it into two parts. The example of persevering in the Word and the duty of persevering in the Word. So we'll think about the example which they set. And then the Apostle Paul obviously sets forth that as a duty or a model to follow. So we'll think about that. Begin with the example, and it begins with faith reception, and you see the faith reception of the word here in verse 6, as the apostle said, having received the word. Having received the word. Now, first of all, let's place that in its context, because you'll remember what the apostle Paul is up to here. As he was giving thanks to them over the work of God in their midst, you'll see at the end of verse 4 that one of the things that he expresses thanks for when he considers the Thessalonians as God's election. We saw last week how the Apostle set forth objective and subjective grounds of assurance of election because he wanted to strengthen and reinforce these people in a sense of assurance about their salvation because it was under attack. So he appealed to objective grounds, the word coming to them through preaching. And then he set up subjective grounds, the word being applied to the power of the Holy Spirit. But you see here, as you move into verse 6, we uh, should discern by the connection of ideas, the apostle isn't quite done giving objective grounds. But this morning, I don't want to make this passage or this message about additional grounds of assurance as much as I want to make it about characteristic of those who are saved. And you can see the connection of ideas in the beginning words of verse 6. You also. Literally, it says, and you. So he's continuing the idea of supplying them with confirmation. Now he appeals to something which is very characteristic about them, which stands as a powerful attestation of their standing in grace. That thing that he says was characteristic of them is how they continued to receive the word. Now notice that when I said when we think about this phrase, having received the word, it is about continuation. Here the Apostle Paul, I would argue, is no longer speaking to them about the fact that they were credibly, genuinely, and sincerely saved by grace. Now what he is doing is showing them that there's evidence of their salvation which now is manifested in how they handle the Word. And how they handle the Word is made quite evident here. They received it. They received it. 
If you take that phrase, having received the word, and you trace it out throughout the New Testament, there's a series of examples in the book of Acts, and I don't think I'll walk you through them right now at this moment. But one of the things that you see in this phrase is it's always included in a context which testifies to ongoing faithfulness and submission to the word of God. In other words, it's an indicator of the fruit that has been caused through the preaching of the gospel. That's what the Apostle Paul wants to isolate and set our sights upon as he reminds them of this powerful work of God in their midst, which testifies to their standing. They continue to be recipients of the word, faithfully submitting to the word and clinging to the word as a part of their spiritual experience. And what makes it all the more remarkable to us is the qualifying phrase now, with much tribulation. With much tribulation. And this is that word that we saw so many times in the book of Acts, which speaks of something which is severe. It's not just trouble. It's not mere inconvenience. It's real distress, whether that's psychological, emotional, or physical. It is a word that is filled with intensity and pain and trial and difficulty. And it's used a couple of different times here in the uh, the Thessalonian correspondence because Paul has to make a point of this. They have been enduring in the midst of this tribulation and it's characterized their life in a remarkable way in spite of all of this suffering. What have they done? Well, instead of it going backwards in a spiritual life, they've matured. They've made progress. They've become firm in faith. And what made this all the more troubling to them is the people who brought the affliction. It was their neighbors. It was their neighbors. We read about it in Acts 17, how... Uh, Some of the Jews who were jealous about the progress of the gospel in Thessalonica, uh, well, they went down to the marketplace and were told they rounded up a a bunch of degenerates. The King James says, lewd men of the baser sort. Bad people, in other words. They gathered them together and they incited them to mob violence against their neighbors. These were cruel people. Mean-spirited people. In fact, they they were so mean-spirited and contentious and jealous that when they heard the Apostle Paul was preaching with success in Berea, uh, they hopped in their automobile, drove down there to start more trouble in Berea. Because they hated Christ and the gospel and Christianity. And they wanted to make people's lives miserable who loved Jesus. And so what makes the the model even more remarkable, it's good enough when you hear that they were faithfully and submissively clinging to the word. That is to be the Christian. More than that. Well, they did it with much affliction. And now you have your final qualifier with the joy of the Holy Spirit. See, that's another marker of the maturity of this congregation. We would expect the Apostle Paul to say, but you did it begrudgingly. At least you did it, though. You did it with anxiety, but at least you were faithful. You did it with some wavering and hesitation, but you didn't fall away. 
It's understandable after all. You're very weak, immature, brand new baby believers. No, what he says is, you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, indicating that the Spirit of God worked in them this great grace of joy. So in spite of the fact that their friends and neighbors and perhaps their former co-workers and even family members were agitating them and afflicting them and causing them tremendous trouble and distress, what did they do? They held their ground for Christ and they did so with joy. Remarkable attitude. And so there is the part of the example of the persevering in the word. They received it in tribulation with joy. Why? What's the basis? Look back at the beginning of verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. Notice here the principle of imitation which is in view. The principle of imitation. It's one that we find across the New Testament where the Apostle says, be imitators of me. Repeatedly he says that. The, the preacher in Hebrews 6.12 talks about the believers there uh, should be imitators of those who faith and patience inherit the promises. So the Bible is full of the language of imitation. You have it here. And the thing of it is, this idea of imitators is described, they're qualified by having received the word. So the way in which they were imitators is expressed in the way they handled the word and received it. So in other words, the Apostle Paul says that we and the Lord were models for them which they imitated by the way they received the word. What I want to key in on here is the fact that Paul doesn't just say you became imitators of us, but also of the Lord, indicating to us that the apostles, Paul and then Silvanus and Timothy, his helpers, were living embodiments of what it meant like to be like Jesus. Think about that. The apostle is saying they learned to imitate Jesus by watching the apostles because the apostle was conforming his conduct to Christ. You know, it reminds us this morning that Jesus did mean to leave an example for us. That great text for disciples. Jesus says, uh, if anyone would follow me, if anyone would be my disciple, what must he do? He must come after me, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So Jesus did not intend for us to imitate him. I think, you know, there's something very specific here that, that Paul says that Jesus set an example of and that they are following. What is it? He says, you have been imitators of me having received the word. So the very specific way that Paul says they imitated Jesus was... How, by how they submitted to his word. So turn with me to a text I think that sweeps this out about as clearly as you can. That's Hebrews 12, 2. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, is one of those texts which shows us about how Jesus handled the word. Hebrews 12, 2. And you see here the apostle or the preacher says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, 
the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So you see, first of all, this text is about how Jesus handled the word. And we know it's about the word because bound up in that phrase, enduring the cross. Now, the way uh, the entry point for Jesus enduring the cross was was that great night of prayer, right? Remember that great night of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, where where he took his disciples into the the midst of the heart of the darkness of that garden. You'll remember he took two disciples with him, Peter and John. And he said, I want you to post guard with me and I want you to pray with me. And then he he threw a rock and he went about 10 yards away from them and he got down on his knees and he prayed, Father, take this cup from me. And then he concluded that prayer by saying, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What was he wrestling with? He wasn't wrestling with the secret will of God. He was wrestling with the revealed will of God. The scriptures. You see, Jesus interpreted himself and his life and his calling in view of the word of God. And it was very clear that the Old Testament said, this Messiah must suffer even to the point of death. One text that draws that out explicitly is Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is in my heart. That is cited by the preacher in Hebrews 10 to, to explain this is Jesus' understanding of his mission. This is messianic. Your will, that is what is written in the word of God, is my delight. So as Jesus is wrestling... Uh, With the Lord in prayer, he is wrestling with the word. Will he submit? And the fact that the preacher says he endured the cross is ample testimony to this is how Jesus received the word. With faith and submission. But he also received it in tribulation, didn't he? He also received the word in tribulation. That barely needs stating, right? The cross is tribulation. But but there's something that um, is very striking that that the preacher says in another point in Hebrews. It's Hebrews 5, 7, if you look it up later. He looks back on that night of Jesus wrestling in prayer with the Word of God in the garden. And he said... That what Jesus was doing was offering up prayers with loud cries. And that verb there in the text uh, is like nails to a chalkboard. You ever heard nails on a chalkboard? Uh, If you're thinking about it right now, you're just already cringing, aren't you? Shrieking. That's very personal. It's very painful. You see, he was receiving the word in the midst of much tribulation. Saul was anxious. Yet he submitted. Why? Well, you go back to the rest of what the preacher says here. Who for the joy set before him. 
So here you have Christ receiving the word in the midst of much tribulation and doing it in joy. And his joy was what? You. Christ's joy in submitting to the word of God in that particular moment, the entry point to the enduring of the sufferings in the cross was you. Who for the joy set before him, what the preacher is saying is that Jesus Christ on that cross looked down the corridors of the hallway of time and saw you. You and your sins and you and your misery and you and your desperation and you and your soul's agony and you and your need of salvation. If he doesn't do what he's called to do in that moment, there's no hope. For the joy of being the deliverer and the redeemer of the elect, Jesus Christ endured. See, so the apostle here, as he speaks to the Thessalonians, commends them. He says, you have done well. You have imitated Christ. This is how Christ handled the word and received the word. Gritty. Mature. Persevering. People of God, this is the model for how the believer is to handle the word. And we're going to come into duty now in our next point. But just before we get there, let's prepare ourselves for how it is that we do that. And, and our text has it here. It's the clause initial term in Hebrews 12 too. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. You see, in, in the prior verse, we have the... Uh, specter or image of the track and field amphitheater placed before us and the preacher speaking about the Christian life being a race run with all kinds of witnesses before us. So that's the Christian life, just like a race. A long, monotonous, painful, exhausting marathon. He says you can do it fixing your eyes on Jesus. As he commends the Thessalonians, this is precisely what the apostle is speaking of. They imitated Jesus in their reception of the word precisely because they had taken the preaching about Christ to heart. They had heard of his suffering and knew of his joy, which motivated him. They could testify to his obedience. He submitted to that cross. He received the word and faith and reverence and submission. And so he said to them, essentially, you did fix your eyes. And the proclamation to us this morning is that's how we do it. Fixing our eyes on Christ rather than our sorrows. Fixing our eyes on Jesus rather than our tribulations. Well, let's turn to the duty. It's here in our text. And, and we can see the duty from the way the apostle structures his language. Look at verse 7 with me. Hope y'all have so that. You have that? So that. What that's doing is expressing the result of having received the word. It expresses the result of of having received the word, so that. 
And what was the result? So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So here's what he says. The result of your exam, uh, the result of your obedient reception, your submissive reception, your joyful reception in the midst of tribulation is that the result of it all is you become examples. If you have a King James Version this morning, it says, in samples, with an S, meaning plural. There's a, in the Greek text, there's a variation. The text tradition is single or plural. I'm not sure it amounts to a lot of difference. But either way, both of it means a pattern, something to be imitated. In fact, this word means to, to strike a blow to an object. So if you've ever uh, played around with wax you'll notice that it's very impressionable. You could put your finger or your thumb upon a piece of of warm wax and it'll melt with the image of your thumbprint on it, right? You probably did that as a some sort of project in grammar school or elementary school, right? Same thing. That's what it is to stamp an image by striking a blow. So this is a very vivid term that he's using here to, to, to speak of how the conduct of the Thessalonians affected other Christians. He was like striking a blow to their soul. They had a powerful spiritual impact upon others by their faith. You see, their example was effectual. And I want you to notice how effectual it was. So that you became examples to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. I want to say it would be like saying when you think of Macedonia and Achaia, these are political and geographical units. I want to say it would be similar to saying you became example to all the believers in Orange County and in L.A. County. The reality is the region in view is much larger than that. I'd be like saying, you became examples to everyone in California and Arizona. That's a big area. This is how powerful the example of their obedience was and the way they received the word. Notice how that all happened. Uh, Verse 8, 4, The word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. So we have no need to say anything. Notice how this example became so large in its impact. The beginning word there in verse 8 is for, explaining how this all happened. And how did it happen? Well, the word of the Lord uh, sounded forth. You know what that word means? Thunder. Thunder. The great uh, St. Chrysostom, the silver-tongued preacher of the ancient church, said it was like the blast of a bugle. It was like a blast of a bugle. And it went forth from them. That is their own personal example. Here they are as living images of what it looks like to be a maturing disciple in the Lord. It went from them. Their example was so vivid and living and palpable. It went forth from them with this tremendous and powerful sound. And the verb is in the perfect tense, meaning it was a perpetual uproar. You ever been stuck in a lightning or a thunderstorm? 
In California, we're babies. You go out to the Midwest or the East Coast and it thunders, you feel like your boots are going to shake off. It hits the ground so close there. It doesn't hear like that. Have you ever been a thunder and lightning storm in other places where it feels like it's on the ground? It's powerful. It shakes you to the whole courts. It's terrifying. Imagine that never stopping. Imagine that. Not stopping. Their testimony was perpetual. And it was carried. Another example of the widespread impact of the word. It sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. So now here is the image of their example going forth. And just about everybody that looks at this says, this is a reference to the Via Ignitia, right? The great Roman highway, which stretched all the way to Rome and across the Macedonian continent. It was a hundreds and hundreds of mile long road. And what happened on that road was a lot of people traveled on, especially merchants. And so as they'd go from city to city, selling their stuff, they would also take with them this message. So they were fascinated by the Thessalonians. They saw something that looked so unreal and yet so powerful and so gripping. And this language of every place... It's used throughout the New Testament in a very particular way to refer to gathered assemblies of Christians. So the sense here is that these traveling merchants would take the testimony of the Thessalonians into the local church halls and meeting places and they would tell people about the wonderful spiritual example of the Thessalonians. So this was a church which had a powerful witness, not only in its own community, but it uh, radiated for for hundreds of miles across the landscape from church to church throughout the empire. And people said, oh, have you ever heard about the Thessalonians? One of the great radio preachers of the 20th century preached a sermon on this text that I'll never forget it. And the one phrase that caught my mind has never left it. He told his congregation, you're going to love studying about the Thessalonians. Because he says, this is infectious Christianity. This is infectious Christianity. You ever been around somebody who is so full of vigor and energy and life for the things they are passionate about that it rubs off on you and you walk away excited? That you are encouraged? That's them. You know, this is what we need in the Christian life. Encouragement. We need to be built up. We need to be inspired. We need to be motivated. And one of the things that God says we need is examples. People who are like this. People who are examples. You see, the apostle begins by saying they imitated them and the Lord Jesus. And now he's saying the rest of the churches they hear are now imitating the Thessalonians. Because that message is spreading. When people hear it, they are moved. 
But I remind you this is part of the theology and ethics of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul said to Timothy, show yourself an example to those who believe. And then he spelled out the example that's needed. Speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. He says to Timothy, this is what the people of God need. That is the clear implication. They need a living embodiment of the truth. Examples. And that's why we have this language of the duty of being an example. Stamped across several more New Testament texts to remind us this morning, this is what we need. We need to hear about the truth, that's for sure. We need to be catechized in the truth, yes. We need to talk with each other about the truth, certainly. The Bible says we need to see it lived out. We need to see it lived out. We need to watch people live out their faith. But you know, in order for us to benefit from it, we have to be humble enough to acknowledge it when we see it. One of the great problems with being a fault-finding Christian is you're not susceptible to learning by example. We mentioned in our law reading this morning that God had a very ominous reinforcement to a, com- to a command. He says, don't complain against one another, brethren. The Lord is standing at the door. You see, one thing that tears apart Christian congregations and undermines Christians in their faith is complaining, fault-finding, hypercritical people. Because what it does is it sows discord and division among the people of God. And so people, instead of being joyful and teachable and humble, all now are on guard because they're afraid of criticism. And so instead of becoming a learning church, we become a judgmental church. We have to be careful this morning, people of God, to be those who are teachable and humble enough to receive living examples of the faith. When we see endurance, we need to learn from it. When we see self-discipline, we need to pattern it. When we see joy, we need to be exhorted by it. When we see love and action, we need to take instruction. When we see gentleness, we need to mark its forms so we can learn for how to apply it ourselves. The Thessalonian example is commended Because it wasn't just them showing obedience to Christ, but because it helped others. Maybe we can break this down just a bit further. There's two things that are the element of duty here. And that is enduring the Word and being joyful. We're almost wrapping up here, so let's focus on the end game. Two things that are part of the duty that is to be um, patterned, if you will. And the first is the enduring of the Word. Receiving the Word and enduring in it. Continuing on in it in the midst of life's difficulties. And a a text that that comes to mind here is that great parable of the sower, right? Uh, Where Jesus uh, talks about the seed sown. Maybe you learned the song in Sunday school or 
church camp about the seed, uh, some sown in the weeds and some sown in the road and other on the good ground, right? But, but there's one example in there that Jesus speaks of in, as a warning. And what he warns about is being a rocky road hearer, right? Not the ice cream. So don't start thinking about the ice cream. Not a rocky road here in that way, but a rocky road here in this sense that the seed is sown on hard ground. And, and for a moment, the seed um, seems to take some sort of root and it springs up, as the Word says, and then on account of trials and tribulations for the sake of the Word, they fell away from Christ. You know what Jesus says the reason for that was? They didn't have root in themselves. You see, if we would learn from that, not just say, yes, we know about the Thessalonians that they received the word in a particular way. If we would receive it for our own instruction and application, we need to discern why it is a believer receives the word in this way. Jesus Himself identifies it. The Word takes root. You see, Jesus is talking about nature, isn't He? About trees. The most important part of the tree is not what you see, it's what's below ground. Right? The most important part of the tree is not what you see, It's what is below the ground, the root system, because without a root system, the tree would topple over with every little breeze that came through. And all that, there'd be no leaves and no fruit and no life to the tree without what is unseen, which is the roots. That's what Jesus seizes on. For the believer to not be a rocky road here, but to be an enduring, persevering hearer like the Thessalonians, you need the Word to have root in you. Can't become a mature, believing Christian with casual contact with the Word. It needs to take root. That comes through prayer. That comes through hiding the Word of God in the heart, which is a kind of rooting of the Word. Letting the Word dwell in you so that you're able to sense its application and gain insight as the Holy Spirit gives illumination. He's to penetrate the heart. Dig deep with it. Not a casual hearing, but a, but a deep, abiding, solid, grounded rooting of the Word in the heart. And that's why one of the great benefits of singing the Psalms is you're hiding God's Word in your heart. It's always there to exhort you, encourage you, to remind you. So one of the things that Paul would have us take from the example of the Thessalonians is that if we would be maturing Christians, we need to make sure the word is grounding and being rooted in our hearts. The other thing here that is to be patterned, which is an element of obligation for us, is joy. Joy. We can't miss the fact that what Paul highlights here when he speaks about the maturity and the pattern and the model of the Thessalonians is the joy. And this, I think, is sometimes overlooked. 
by reformed types who tend to think that being an egghead is next to godliness. We tend to focus on the mind. We tend to focus on really knowing our stuff. We tend to focus on being the ones who have such discriminating doctrinal palettes that we can tell whether an I has been dotted or T crossed appropriately. And we assume that means godliness. There's something right about being concerned about soundness of doctrine because the Bible tells us that, and conviction of the mind is critical. I'm not trying to undermine it, but that is not the whole. Because what is spoken of here is an attitude, joy. And what it is is not just commended, but commanded. I wonder if you've ever thought of this. Ask yourself, what is commanded the most in the Bible? What is commanded the most? I'll answer. Rejoice. Be joyful. Deep, abiding, inner thankfulness by far and away the greatest in terms of quantity command in Scripture. It's right to be focused on the mind, but if our attitude and heart aren't in conformity with this, we're wrong. All the while, we're perfectly orthodox and right. Think about that. Yeah, it might feel a little odd to us this morning that as important as joy is, we see that it's something that we can't do of ourselves. It's a joy that's not presumed, is not produced by human emotion. It's a joy which comes from the Holy Spirit. So it may feel just a little bit odd that uh, we're supposed to have it even though we can't produce it. The Bible, as much as it is aware of that, doesn't view it as a contradiction because it commands the saints to add joy to their faith. It commands us to rejoice. And so you say this morning, how do we do it? It seems to me there's two things. We pray for it. Paul prays for it for the Roman church. He says, may God fill you with joy. That's a prayer. In uh, that great verse that we often appeal to sometimes to think about why we should sing the Psalms, it it says that we are to uh, speak to one another in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing, making melody with our heart to the Lord, always giving thanks. So there's a combination, it would seem to me, of prayer and being filled with the Word. That's what God uses. We need to make sure this morning as we hear this, Paul is not just commending the Thessalonians, he's commanding us. We're to seek joy. And the problem with this is that many of us aren't joyful. The problem with this is many of us are not joyful. We're disagreeable. We're contentious. We're harsh. Surly, dour, bitter, miserable, judgmental. And what's worse than being that is excusing it. 
saying, well, at least I'm orthodox. At least I got my doctrine right. I might be a miserable believer to be around. I might set everybody's teeth on edge and hair on fire because I treat people badly. But at least my doctrine's good. But you're wrong. You're wrong if that's your attitude. It's not okay. We hear about the duty to rejoice and it being the most predominant command in Scripture. What it calls all of us to do is be humble this morning and to realize the joy is something we all have to fight for and not make excuses because we're without it. And yes, life has a very good way of trying to undermine our joy, doesn't it? Miseries, unfavorable providences, disappointments, brokenness. Yet, it's commanded. And so as we look at these infectious Christians in Thessalonica who sure knew their measure of difficulty, they still saw after this great grace of the Spirit. And God caused it to overflow to them through the Spirit. So it reminds us this morning that we can't be excuse makers. We need to hear the admonition and receive it with joy and thankfulness that the Lord is correcting us so that we seek it. Think about this church here this morning, people of God. We realize that we need the testimony of this church for ourselves today, huh? We may live in the midst of a a juvenile church climate, but we should know better and we should seek for more. We should seek for greater spiritual maturity. And the way that comes is set forth for us here. I think in some of the most plain and interesting and vivid and exciting terms, it's like these Thessalonians. They they saw Jesus Christ as He was proclaimed in the Word of God and they fixed their eyes upon Him. And they knew that He was their Redeemer And that the very way in which He redeemed them through a life of self-sacrifice and enduring tribulation was a model. And they asked God to help them make that the model for their life. And when they did, they persevered in the Word. If we seek that from the Lord... This morning, people of God, we can be sure that God will give us grace to imitate their faith. And to follow our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ, who endured the cross, despising its shame for the joy set before Him. Father, give us large ears this morning that hear the sound of Your Word proclaimed. Give us hearts that are submissive and humble and pliable and teachable and ready to receive. We need a word of encouragement and even a word of admonition to strengthen us and to move us into deeper levels of maturity, conformity to Christ. So I pray this morning that this testimony of the infectious Christians of Thessalonica uh, might... Uh, settle in our heart like a cold cot and that it would um, exhilarate us and build us up in our faith and move us 
into greater Christ-likeness. That we too would like them imitate the Savior, receiving the word in much tribulation with great joy. Hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen.